And we are on chapter 6, page 21 of your booklets. And we finished uh, section 1 last week, so we are on section 2 here for this week. So if you want to turn there. And I will ask for a volunteer to open in prayer if someone is willing. Ron. Amen. All right, so we are looking at the fall of mankind and sin and its punishment. And again, I can't stress this enough. This is not uh, to get us so deep into worm theology that we lose perspective. This is to help us gain perspective of what the gospel addresses and how big and how glorious and how free and how amazing it is. We need to know the problem before we reach out for a solution. So chapter 2, or chapter 6, section 2 says, By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them, and through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of body and soul. Okay. So, does it sound like we have a big problem? Is Jesus is my boyfriend enough to fix this? No, it is not. Okay? We have a big problem that requires a big solution. And let's look at what Scripture says about our condition. Who wants to take Romans 3? Romans 3.23. Caitlin has that. Who wants to take Romans 5.12? Andrew. And the little FF beside 5.12 means following. So you can read it from there to the end of the chapter. Did you know you signed up for that when you said yes? No? Okay. Well, now you do. Okay. Do you want to change your mind? Okay. Good. Oh, and you know what? I actually got ahead of myself. That one will wait just for a little bit. So we'll do this in pieces here. So by this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them, and through this, death came upon all. So, Caitlin, do you want to read from Romans 3 now? Okay. Who has sinned? 
All of us. Yes, we have all sinned. Are there any exceptions? Nope. We could count Christ, but he is a unique human. But the rest of us, no one is immune from sin. Then it goes on to say, all became dead in sin. And there I'll ask Andrew then to read from Romans 5.12 to the end. Okay, Romans is the best compact systematic theology you could ever find, and there is so much in this passage. We're going to be looking at one element of it today, uh, and that is in regards to the transmission of sin, Uh, but there is really so much in here, okay? So, sin came into the world through one man. And then it says, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Just notice, hold that thought, what it means that all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so all sinned. And I think this is worth considering, how did these people sin from Adam to Moses, where there's no law? Because it says here, sin is not counted, where there's no law. Okay, the law didn't come till Moses. Now, did people in between Adam and Moses die? Mm Mm-hmm, they did. So were they sinners? Yeah? If they weren't sinners, they wouldn't die. Okay? So what does this mean that all sinned? They're sinning, I think, well, and it it goes on to explain here uh, in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, so they were dying in there, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So Adam's sin is a sin against explicit law. Adam had a specific command that he disobeyed. 
therefore death. And then those between Adam and Moses were not disobeying explicit law. So why did they die? It says because they sinned. Well, what's the nature of their sin? How did they sin if there's no law? Their conscience. That is certainly part of it, right? Because God's law is written on our heart, right? So they sinned against what little light they had, yes? But there's something else here. How else is their transgression not like the transgression of Adam? Was Adam born with the sin nature? No, he was not. We are. I think there's two elements here to the nature of that sin. One, these people are are sinning by nature. In their nature, they are sinners. Okay? Before they do anything, they're sinners. When you are conceived, when, when sperm and egg meet after the fall, what happens is a little sinner is conceived with all of Adam's guilt in him or her. Okay? Babies are not innocent. Okay? Babies are not innocent. They are unsophisticated in the way they cover their sins, so they look innocent. But babies are not born innocent. Okay? That might be cutting against the grain a little bit, but let's do a thought experiment. Who's ever seen a two-year-old lie? When did that baby go to lying school to learn how to do that? Or does that just come out of him? Because that's who he is. Okay? I can't stress this enough. Your theology is going to go a very different direction if you have such a thing as babies being born innocent. Okay? That view comes to us from a man by the name of Pelagius in the early church whose heresy was condemned more than any heresy in church history. Pelagius denied original sin. So everyone is born morally neutral. Okay? And Pelagius said it's rare, and he he even admitted, I've never seen this. But if you're born innocent, it is theoretically possible to live a life sin-free. Okay? So Pelagius had two ways to heaven. One was by grace, which is the avenue most people take, but one is by works. If you never sin, you don't need grace. Okay? So Pelagius said grace is helpful, but it's not necessary. You can, through your free will, because remember, this is the root of free will theology, uh, your will is truly free, equally to be inclined towards good or evil. And you can theoretically make enough right choices that you avoid sin your entire life. Okay? Uh, and that is, even, even our Roman Catholic friends would say that is a heretical view. Okay? No group of Orthodox Christianity holds to Pelagianism. It has officially been condemned by the entire church nine times. And it's probably the majority view among evangelicals today. Okay? This is where we are. Okay? But we are born in sin. And I'll stop there. Does this make sense? Does it cut against the grain? Does it cut against our assumptions? Are we well-versed enough in the doctrine of original sin that we can swallow this? Who had, who had babies being innocent previously? Probably once upon a time I did. 
but God has been kind to me. Okay? Babies just don't know how to sin in a sophisticated way. So it's cute, but it's actually not always very cute. Okay? Yeah. I don't know. It, it, this, is, this is a big deal that we get this right from the beginning here, so I just want to make sure we're tracking. <laughs> Does this make sense? Give me some kind of a visible cue that this makes sense. Babies are born with the sin nature. And so, if we are born with the sin nature and we're naturally inclined towards ourselves, we're naturally inclined to put us first, we're naturally inclined to reject God's law, Does it make sense that little kids punch each other for a toy? Okay. Does it make sense that there's chocolate all over a kid's face and he has no idea how it got there? Right? He for sure didn't touch the chocolate. Does that make sense now? Yeah? Okay. The nature just comes out. Jesus says that later in the Gospel of Matthew. He'll talk about how uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in us will come out, okay? And innocence does not come out. Sin does, which tells us something about what's inside. So all became dead in sin, and then Tim mentioned our conscience is part of that. So what about people that don't have the law of God? There's people today that have never seen a Bible. Can God hold them accountable for their sin? Yeah, Don thinks yes, Kevin thinks yes, Inga thinks yes, okay? How does that work? How can God hold you accountable for something he hasn't put in your hands? Let's put it in your heart. Let's put it in your heart. That's right. That's exactly right. That's right. That's the image of God coming out, right? And it's misdirected, but that is the image of God. For sure. Yes, the image of God is in man, and so it is inescapable. We are inescapably religious. Okay? Just as much as we're born sinful, everyone is born knowing with certainty that God exists. Okay? This week I get to start teaching apologetics at Miller, and I cannot wait, because I'm going to make these kids' task remarkably easy. It's going to be remarkably easy. Everyone you're going to come in conversation with the rest of your life, you're already starting. They're on your side. They already know God exists. So your job is actually made remarkably easy now. Your job isn't to convince them that God exists. Your job is to do what Romans says, is to leave them without excuse. Okay? Your job is to scrape away all the barnacles that make them pretend like God doesn't exist. But deep down there, they know God is there. Okay? So you're just pulling away the layers of excuses and unbelief so that the unbeliever is left without excuse. Apologetics becomes remarkably easy when you enter every conversation knowing this guy already knows that God exists. That's why he's angry. Okay? That's why he's angry. Okay? We need this view. And so, uh, uh, I think I've shared this before. Francis Schaeffer has a great uh, word... uh, thought picture for how this works. How can God hold the pagan bushman accountable for a law that he doesn't possess? He says, just imagine everyone was born, Francis Schaeffer was big in the 1970s, so you'll have to excuse the outdated technology, but he said, what if everyone was born with a tape recorder hanging around their neck? 
And that tape recorder just did nothing other than record what came out of their mouth. And then God plays that tape back as the standard of judgment. Did you live up to the words that came out of your mouth? Okay, even if that alone, even if you're your own system of morality that comes out of your mouth condemns you. Because you're going to be mad if someone tells you a lie. Okay? At some point in history, you're going to be recorded that's coming out of your mouth uh, that lying is wrong. And then God's going to show you all the lies you told. By your own standard, you're condemned. <laughs> okay? So again, this is important. Why send missionaries to the bush? Okay? To give the light. And some would say, well, people aren't condemned unless they actively reject the gospel. We're born saved, and you get lost. If that's true, no missionary should be anywhere because all they're doing is sending people to hell that were otherwise on their way to heaven. Okay? The reason we send missionaries to the remote places of the globe is because these people are lost in their nature. Okay? They don't live up to their own standards. They don't live up to the light that God has put in them. So we are not saved until we're lost and rejected. We are lost until we are saved. So when someone gives you a hypothetical situation about the poor, innocent native in Africa, what's already wrong with that description? He's not innocent. There is no innocent native in the jungles of Venezuela or in the heart of the Sahara Desert. There's not one innocent person. Every last one is a sinner who needs the light of the gospel. That is why world missions. That's why evangelism is so important. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. And here's quite a bit. Who wants to take Titus? Ron? Okay. Who wants to take Genesis? Inga? Jeremiah? Who's got Jeremiah? Aunt Evangeline? And who's got Romans? I see Simon. Oh, Raymond. Okay. Simon was busily offering up Lydia, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Jesse. Jesse was sacrificing his sister. All right. So let's look at this. So what we, are, what we are undergirding here is this comment that we became completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. Okay, so both are under the fall. Okay, uh, whoever had Titus, go ahead. Okay, so what's defiled? Yep. And what does Christ heal? For those who are in Christ, see how the whole picture gets turned around? Okay, nothing is impure to those who are in Christ. Genesis 6 5. Who had that? This is a scripture. Everyone makes their Bible reading plan in January. And I think most people have the resolve at least to make it to Genesis 6. <laughs> okay? 
So I think this is one of those chapters that gets read more than most. Okay? And how many times has everyone here read that verse and kept on reading? Read it again, Inga. Listen closely to the adjectives that are used here. Wow. So much for the far side cartoon with a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and we're kind of hung in the balance. Right? Every intention of the thought of his heart was only doing evil continually. Could you possibly make that sentence stronger? Is there another adjective you could throw in there to make it more clear? Okay? There is nothing in us that wants good after the fall. Okay? So do we have free will? Well, yes, in the sense that it's always us choosing what we desire. Yes, in that sense, absolutely, we have free will. In fact, I'd say that's the only sense of free will that even makes philosophical sense. The problem is what we want. We want the wrong things. So our freedom will be abused. We will choose what we want. And we never, in ourselves, want what's right. Okay? So these aren't contradictory ideas that man has free will and that we are evil. It's not contradictory. We choose according to what we want, and what we want is directed from our nature, and our nature has just been described. Okay? Unless or until the Holy Spirit puts a new heart in, we want the wrong things, and we choose accordingly. Jeremiah 17.9. Who can understand it? It's incurable. Can we fix our own hearts, according to the prophet Jeremiah? No, we can't. You can't fix your heart. You can't pedal harder. Okay? You can't run faster. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Okay? This is going to happen by grace or it's not going to happen. We need a new heart. And this is why, has anyone noticed, man, I'll maybe talk to the older crowd, <clears throat> but anyone can answer. Has anyone noticed that there's a lot less emphasis in evangelical circles on being born again than there was 40 years ago? Have you noticed that? Listen to Billy Graham. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to Francis Schaeffer. You listen to those old guys on black and white grainy pictures. And they talk a lot about the rebirth. You must be born again. One lady, after one of George Whitfield's sermons when he was in America, came up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, you talk so much about the rebirth. Why do you keep saying you must be born again? He said, well, dear woman, because you must be born again. Okay? This was the emphasis, and it must be the emphasis. And we don't talk, maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to hear feedback on this. I don't think we talk a lot about the rebirth. Maybe here at Trinity we do. But overall, in evangelical circles, how much do we hear about being born again, about the rebirth? Not enough? Yeah. Like, for example, I hear a lot of 
Anyone over 50 willing to stick their neck out? Think back to evangelical circles when you were a kid and then now. Am I seeing something that's not there? I wasn't there 50 years ago, so I can't say for sure. What's that? No, I, exactly. Someone asked me the other day, so you're what, like 35? I'm like, wow. Very few people make a mistake on that side of my age. <laughs> yeah, I, maybe partially this is informed by my own grandpa, who was deeply concerned in his own life, in his own local context, how much less we talk about being born again. He remembered Frank D. Reimer and Ben D. Reimer. Boy, did they talk about those boys needed to be born again. Those boys needed to be converted. They needed to come to Jesus. And what do we talk about now? A relationship with Jesus? A faith journey? Right? And, and that language isn't necessarily wrong. Okay? We do have a personal relationship with Jesus. People are. And I, I hope God saves Jordan Peterson. And I hope what we're seeing is God <laughs> moving him in that direction. But you're right, ultimately, right, you can't be sanctified before you're justified. Yeah, that's what you're saying, and I understand that. Um, and I remember Keith's grandpa was a, is a preacher in the church I grew up in, and Keith's grandpa was big on the rebirth. You must be born again, you must be born again. But that was a little bit of a voice in the wilderness, to be quite honest. Okay? So in my experience talking to older people, and watching old sermon clips and stuff like that, I, I, I think we are missing this piece. <clears throat> and I think the reason we're probably missing this piece is because we've softened the impact of original sin. And because of that, the gospel gets altered. Okay? Now the gospel is life coaching. It's helping us to live a good and upright life rather than a radical change of who we are in our very nature, of our disposition. And if I'm wrong, then I trust you'll forgive me. But that's the way it seems to me. Right. Because it's just a mistake or it's a... Amen. Yeah, you, you don't see them. 
Yep. Yeah, you can't get the gospel to them if there's not a problem, right? Yeah, and when we pitch the gospel as, well, Jesus wants to be your friend, again, which is true. It's not a lie. That's true. But, well, I've got lots of friends. I'm happy. I, I don't need one more friend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so your you're, you're imaginary sky daddy, I'm not interested. Right? Yeah. No, and we, we tend to then preach Christ as this weak beggar who wants to be your friend, right? He's the grade seven kid sitting all by himself in the cafeteria, right? And if you love Satan, keep scrolling. And, and, but if you love Jesus, say yes, amen, and share, right? <laughs> and if you don't share this, you love Satan. And there's a picture of Satan to remind you that you love Satan if you keep scrolling, okay? Uh, but that's, it, it's so goofy. It's so, it's so empty. It's so nothing, right? Right? Uh, Christ is not a weak beggar looking for a friend. He is the master of the universe. He has commanded you to repent. He demands that you be born again. He demands that you come to Jesus Christ in faith. Okay? He's not lonely looking for a friend. He has commanded you to repent of your sin. And then lastly, Romans 3, 10-19. Who wants to take that? Right. So here Paul goes on an extended quotation streak from the Old Testament. Everything that's indented in your Bible there is from Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms. So this is a he's summarizing the Old Testament teaching. And again, 
Um, who is familiar with the seeker-sensitive church movement that was very popular in the 90s, and probably to some degree still, right? So uh, a church plant would go into a city and they'd kind of find out what the average income was, popular styles of music, popular styles of communication, and so forth. And then they would build a church accordingly. Okay? So here we're in a neighborhood where the average age is 44 and you know, pop music is most popular and 15 minutes is the average attention span. Boom, you've got a formula for a growing church. Okay? This was very popular, still is to some degree. Um, and I think the motives were probably good, right? We want to get people into church. We want, we want to reach the community, so I, I'm not going to disparage motives at all. But what's the assumption behind a seeker-sensitive church movement? What's, well, there's that. There's also the assumption that people are looking for God. What does verse 11 say? Who are these churches built for? Seekers. How many are there according to Scripture? None. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because we all know in our experience, you think, hey, well, I know the text says that, but wait a minute, I can think of a couple people that were seeking. They were curious. There was some curiosity. So how do we explain that? And I think two ways. One is, as Keith mentioned with Jordan Peterson, it could be that God is drawing them in. That could be, but that's God's work, not their own natural inherent curiosity uh, and thoughtfulness. So what you could be watching is the early signs of God bringing somebody into the faith. Another possible explanation, and this one has come, who's ever heard of Blaise Pascal? French mathematician, yep, philosopher, uh, I think he has a good explanation, is that a lot of these people are looking for the benefits of God, but they're not looking for God himself, okay? Perhaps there's something especially painful happening in their life, and they need, frankly, they need a, a life raft right now, because they're getting swamped by life. And, again, because they're made in the image of God, and they can't deny it, they're looking for the benefits that only God can give. They don't want their sins addressed, they just want the bank to not foreclose on their house. Okay? They don't want a new heart. They just want to save their marriage. Okay? They're not torn up over their sin. They just want their teenagers to quit doing crack. Okay? That's what's happening. They're looking for the benefits of God, but they are not looking for God himself. Okay? So who are the seekers? Well, the seekers are us. People who are seeking the kingdom are people who have been born again or maybe in the process of being born again. <clears throat> We're the seekers. What does Jesus say uh, in uh, his discourse with uh, Nicodemus, the born-again passage in John 3? Unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. He can't even see it. He can't see it. He's blind to the things of God. He cannot even see it. So if you can see the kingdom of God, that means the Holy Spirit has turned the lights on. Okay? Those are the seekers. Seekers are those whom the Holy Spirit uh, has regenerated. We are the seekers. This group of people here this morning are the seekers. Okay? And Ron even prayed to that effect. Why is it that we know people? This stuff is the blood that's pumping in our veins, and we get 
amped up over it and it's exciting and it's life. And then we have people in our own families who just don't care. And because we're born again, we're wondering, how can you not care? This is life and death. How can you not give a rip? It's because they haven't been born again. They cannot see the kingdom of God. They're in exactly the situation that this chapter is describing. They're dead. Okay, does this make sense? How big, how vital an operation the rebirth is? How extensive sin is? Okay, we don't need a moral reformation. We need a complete renovation from the inside out. We need a new nature. We need a new heart. Okay? And so we should never tire of the message that you must be born again. We don't graduate from the gospel, right? Like the gospel is the front door that gets us in, and now we can move to other stuff. Christians need the gospel too. The gospel is for Christians. <laughs> okay? We need to be reminded of who we are on our own and what Christ has done on our behalf. <clears throat> we won't finish, but let's start on section 3. By God's appointment, they were the root and the representatives, this is talking about our first parents, Adam and Eve, of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. And it's maybe especially fitting as there's a little baby being a little baby in the back. The church father, Augustine, had an explanation for why babies cry when they're born. And I don't know if he was being a little bit whimsical or if he actually meant it. It works either way. He said the reason babies cry when they're born is because they realize they're little sinners. (laughs) And they were born into a sinful world. It makes sense that a baby would cry when he shows up here. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I've seen these memes... (laughs) of a little baby being born, please not Ohio, please not Ohio, please not Ohio. (laughs) And then the doctor holds the baby and tells it was born in Cleveland, and the baby starts to cry. I don't know why people hate on Ohio, but... um, But that was Augustine's explanation for why babies cry. They're born into a fallen world. And there might actually, I mean, it seems comical to us, there might be something to that. It's possible. Would a baby cry being born in an unfallen creation? Probably not. What's there to cry about? You're not hungry. Your tummy doesn't hurt. You're not tired. Maybe babies wouldn't cry in an unfallen creation. We don't know. But because God appointed Adam and Eve as the representatives for all of us, we're represented by them, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. And this ordinary procreation bit is important because every human except for one has been born by ordinary procreation. Okay? So notice this. Ordinary procreation is what makes us sinners. So can Jesus still be born from Mary and be sinless? Yeah, because there's no ordinary procreation there. But for the rest of us, sperm and egg had to meet. And that is how this is transmitted. So Christ gets an exemption. We do not. And let's just look at the footnotes for that, and then we'll pick it up from there. So uh, let's look at the footnotes here for number six. Who's got Romans 5? Howard. 
And who wants to take 1 Corinthians 15? Tim? Okay. And maybe in the interest of time, usually we've read this whole section, but just do those verses for now. Maybe do 21 and 22 and then 45 through 49 rather than the whole bit there. Okay, Howard, Romans 5. We did. It's important. <laughs> the sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. Okay. <clears throat> so we're covering that ground again, and you can see by one man, we're all fallen. Okay, So again, this is underscoring the fact that we don't become sinners when we start sinning. Okay, We start sinning because we are sinners. Nature first, actions proceed from nature. Okay, But nature is more fundamental, nature is more foundational. So by nature we're sinners, therefore sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. Okay? It's not the other way around. Okay? <clears throat> and then 1 Corinthians. Okay, so again, there's these two atoms, there's these two representatives, and in Adam all fell, and in Christ all are made alive, and that doesn't mean everyone is reborn, that means all in Christ are there, and all in Adam, well the curse no longer applies to those who have transferred from Adam to Christ. So these are the two representatives of humanity, uh, and either one gives their nature to everyone who is aligned to them. Okay? So we all receive our nature from our Father. Adam or Christ. Okay? This is a change of nature. This isn't a change of behavior. This isn't a change of morals. It involves that. This is a change of nature. You're going from having Adam's characteristics to having Christ's characteristics. And we live in that weird in-between time where the old man is slowly dying and the new man is slowly being raised to life. 
That's why sin is still a temptation. Okay? That's why it seems like slow treading, because that old man doesn't want to die fast. But if you are a Christian, he is dying. Be sure of that. He is dying. And the new man is being raised to life. Be sure of that. Okay? Until the day of our death, until the day of our glorification, that fight continues on. And that's the weird in-between time that we're living in. <clears throat> but the nature is inherited from Adam or from Christ. We're represented by one or the other. You also notice, it's not exactly here, but following this language, you ever noticed, for the wages of sin is? Notice the word wages. But the free gift is? Eternal life. Wages is juxtaposed with free gift. The one we earn, the one we deserve. Hell is well-deserved. Hell is your wages. Okay? Hell is your just deserts. Hell is what we get for being who we are. Heaven is a free gift. Okay? So they're alike in that there's only two sides here, but they're unalike in one we, one we deserve, one we receive by grace. <clears throat> And we'll stop there. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for uh, the truths of your word. Lord, I want to thank you for an opportunity that we uh, have in a class like this to work through the big ideas, the big doctrines of your word. Thank you for the interaction. Thank you for the discussion. Lord, and I pray that uh, everything that uh, we have discussed here this morning that is good and true and beautiful Lord, I pray that you would press that into the corners of our hearts and of our minds, saturate us with your word. Lord, in those things which uh, we have not spoken well or not thought well, we ask that you would take that away, that we would forget that, that we would push it aside, uh, and that our minds, our hearts would be transformed uh, by your spirit. Lord, again, I want to thank you for each one here. I want to thank you for the work that you are doing. Uh, We want to trust the rest of this morning and our time together into your hands. Thank you for your gifts to us. Thank you for your kindness. I pray that it would truly transform our minds. We commit this morning to your hands and say thank you for all that you have done for us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.